Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, many places have struggled with shortages of testing kits. Could a technique called pool sampling provide a solution? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. Also coming up on today's show, a million mile battery for electric cars. A million-mile battery should last for about 1.6 million kilometres, and that's basically to the moon and back twice. And we reveal the mystery of life, at least the science of what happens right after conception. Initially, we don't have so many cells, so if one cell stops to divide or divide too slowly or divide too quickly, the consequences are unforgiving. First up, since early March, testing shortages have held back the global efforts to contain COVID-19. We have a simple message for all countries. Test, test, test. We want to make sure that those who need a test can get a test very safely, quickly and conveniently. But we don't want people to take a test if we feel that They shouldn't be doing it. Many of the problems that we had came because we were unable to actually work out exactly where we were and were trying to sort of see our way through the fog with more difficulty. In many countries, the capacity to test for the virus has increased, but not by enough. America tests 800,000 people every day, but researchers at Harvard estimate that the country would need to carry out 5 million tests per day, more than six times that amount, in order to reopen safely. The problem is a constant source of frustration, so scientists are getting more inventive. On August 3rd, Britain announced that it's rolling out tests that give results in just 90 minutes. More people are going to be able to get tested more quickly so we can find out where the virus is and tackle it and keep those rates of infection down. And Florida plans to provide a test that delivers results in just 15 minutes. The amount that labs are being required to do is higher than what they're able to do. And so this is why we're in a situation where people are trying to come up with different ways to test to sort of alleviate the burden that is on the laboratories. Max Horbury writes about science for The Economist. So the new test that's being introduced in the UK is this 90-minute do-it-yourself test. And basically the way it works is you take a sample and you pop it into this little cartridge and essentially the lab is in that little cartridge. Instead of having to send it off to a laboratory, you're kind of doing it yourself. And so you pop it in a little machine and that lets it do its thing for an hour or so and you should be able to then determine whether you have COVID or not. This is allowing 
uh, the UK potentially to start testing more when it comes to care homes and hospitals and schools, and most importantly, testing the asymptomatic, the people who aren't showing any symptoms in case they happen to be carrying the virus and don't realize it. Another type of testing being used around the world is pool testing. How does that work? So essentially, the idea is instead of testing people individually, if you have a fair degree of confidence that enough of the population are going to test negative, what you can do is take a group of samples and put them all together and use one test on that kind of mix, that cocktail of samples. And let's say you take 10 and you put them all together and you test that, you can then see whether that has COVID in it. And if it comes back negative, that means that Well, all of those 10 people can be given the all clear just using one test. If, on the other hand, it comes back positive, then you need to test individually or sort of break the groups down into subgroups and then test them. So where does pool testing come from? So pool testing was originally developed by an American economist in the 1940s as a way to test World War II soldiers for syphilis. And Since then, it's basically been used consistently for a lot of sexually transmitted infections. It's used a lot on blood transfusions, but mainly for screening. This, I believe, is the first time that it's going to be used in a virology setting and the first time that it will really be used as a diagnostic technique. And where is that being done? Well, it's being done kind of all over the place. It's being done in the US. It's being done in Germany. We've also seen it happen in Rwanda and Israel, Pakistan, India, China, Singapore. I mean, the problem of shortages and testing is something that's happening even in the richest countries in the world. And so group testing of pooled specimens allows places who are struggling with a lack of resources to test more efficiently. In Frankfurt, they started doing this earlier in the pandemic due to shortages of testing kits. And I spoke to Dr. Sandra Zizek from the University Hospital in Frankfurt about this. There were not enough kits for all patients and for all tests that we want to do. And therefore, we decided it might be possible to pool the samples and not to waste the resources or too much of the kits I think from a time point, it's not faster because pooling is really something that the technician has to do by hand. And it, of course, takes some time for the technician. And if you have a positive pool, then you have to do every single sample again, which takes around five hours longer. So how has the technique of pool testing been used in a practical setting? Well, in Germany, in Frankfurt, Dr. Zizek has started doing pool testing since a few months ago. And she basically now will test every single person that comes into the hospital, regardless of why they're there and regardless of whether they feel ill. And she actually began to test kindergartens as they were returning back to school after the lockdowns were lifted. We started the study with 3,000 samples a week in kindergartens and testing the children and the teachers. 
after three days we had to shut down the first kindergarten because one of the teacher was positive for example and she was without any symptoms and i think that's really important that you learn to if it really makes sense to test or if you should maybe just test if someone has symptoms or if there was a case and yeah as a contact person so she was pulling samples from around 3,000 kindergarten children and teachers using only around 300 tests. And if they had done individual testing, they might not have found that quite as quickly. Now, let me probe this a little bit more. In a place like America, where COVID is raging with community spread, how often is an entire pool clear of COVID? It seems like if just one positive can spoil a whole cohort of negatives, that it's not going to be a very workable idea, but perhaps I'm wrong. Well, this is why it's best used either at the beginning or the end of an outbreak, because the prevalence of the virus has to be quite low. If the incident rate is too high, then yeah, it becomes kind of pretty ineffective because you're going to have to do the individual testing either way. But if the incident rate is low enough, then it becomes a very effective way of testing large groups of people. And sure enough, some laboratories in the US, for example, that began doing pool testing have now had to stop because of spikes that have occurred after lockdowns being lifted. Now, what are the problems with it? Other than it being a very difficult and technical process, you know, the labeling has to be all done manually in order to keep straight who is in which pool. But other than that, it's mainly an issue of a loss of sensitivity. If you're taking 10 samples, 5 samples, and putting them all together and testing them, you're diluting it by the amount of other samples. So you need to start with tests that have a very high sensitivity. But even if you're playing it safe and pooling in groups of five, that's still five times more effective, if done right, than individual testing. Now, presumably, this is good news for developing countries who have the least resources to manage the crisis and would probably benefit the most from pool testing. Absolutely. I mean, if the richest countries in the world are having shortages, then you can pretty safely assume the problem is widespread. And there are a lot of lower income countries that are really struggling. Pool testing definitely offers a solution. It offers a bright light at the end of the tunnel. But it's not a one-size-fits-all. It is a very complicated process. You need to have the right resources in your laboratory. And sure enough, in all the countries where it is happening, it isn't happening anywhere on a widespread kind of national level quite yet. It's happening in specific laboratories that really know what they're doing and have the resources in order to do it. Wow. Okay. Max Horbury, thank you very much. Thank you very much. For more on this and lots of other technology and science stories, subscribe to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. Next up, every mobile phone user knows the pain of a deteriorating battery. As annoying as this is, phone batteries can be replaced fairly cheaply, or the whole handset can be traded in for a new one. But for the electric car, another piece of kit that uses a battery, a failing source of power can cause bigger issues. Now manufacturers are hoping to solve that problem with the launch of a million-mile battery. At the moment, car makers guarantee their batteries, typically for eight years or around 200,000 kilometers. 
Paul Markerley is our innovation editor. A million mile battery should last for about 1.6 million kilometres, and that's basically to the moon and back twice. And it means that customers are less likely to get stranded as their batteries age and fade and generally go wrong. And it will help to retain the second-hand value of their vehicles. So how do they get the battery to slow down ageing? What they're trying to achieve with a million mile battery is that as soon as they're made, uh, lithium ion batteries, which is the sort that are mostly used in electric cars, they age as the materials they're made from slowly deteriorate. Now that's calendar aging, but in addition, the batteries also age every time they're used, every time they're charged up and discharged, the cycle as it's called. There's a chemical reaction, and those chemical reactions that go on inside age the battery. And a bit like your mobile phone, you find at first it holds a charge for a long time, but then eventually these charging up more and more often. Now, the million-mile battery should slow down these changes, so that means that the batteries in electric cars will generally last longer. But what have they done to slow down that aging? Under ideal conditions, the battery in an electric car would probably last a long time anyway. But in reality, it's the cars have rarely ever driven in ideal conditions. If you thrash the car, its battery deteriorates faster. Regular fast charging, that also reduces battery life, as does overcharging and deep discharging. So does driving in really hot weather or very cold weather. Lots of things there that, that sort of make the battery fade faster. So by dealing with the sort of chemical structures and the mechanical structures inside the battery in a host of different ways, and these are very complex reactions and introducing new materials and engineering them in different ways they just hope to overcome all these little difficulties and so that gives you a host of technological advances required to make it possible to deal with these individual problems and that makes the battery more durable and in turn gives it a longer working life okay so if they get this right what will it mean for the future of electric cars yeah, most people are never going to drive a million miles in the same car. If you do the maths, a driver with a normal mileage, regular use could drive the same car for a, a century. Well, that's not going to happen because new models come along and batteries will get better. So, so in reality, nobody's actually going to drive a million miles. But some people might. There are some very heavy users out there. And in the future, we're going to see robo-taxis. And these clock up vast mileages because they'll probably operate around the clock. So too would long-haul electric lorries and electric buses. And, and in the future, some of these electric cars will be at home plugged into the Grid, acting as a kind of buffer store for electricity and their owners getting paid for it. So that means the batteries in those cars are being used and will be ageing even if the cars don't go anywhere. So there will be some genuine uses for these very long-haul batteries. Now, that's just lifetime. What about distance on a single charge? That seems pretty critical. Is that being extended too or is that a totally different chemistry? Well, the same research that's going on into making a million-mile battery is also leading, eventually, to better batteries that would go further on a single charge. Now, in particular, what companies are aiming at is what you call a solid-state battery, and that's in which the liquid electrolyte is replaced with a more reliable solid one in a battery. So that could give an electric car perhaps twice the range of a present vehicle on a single charge. 
and it could ha- even extend the uh, life of the batteries much longer. Now, all the producers are working on that. The big problem is making these things commercially, but uh, very likely in, in sort of five, ten years' time, we may see those batteries too. So who makes these magical batteries? CATL, a big Chinese battery maker, they say they're ready to start making them. Tesla's rumoured to have one in the works, and we may hear more about that in September. And General Motors, in partnership with LG Chem, a big Korean firm, they're planning to make them soon. And most manufacturers, I think, will be producing them. So we will see them in the next couple of years. So they're coming down the pike, but can you go even farther than a million miles? You probably would, especially if you get these solid-state batteries that I was talking about and the longer driving ranges obviously will um, improve the durability of the battery so yeah a two million mile battery probably is likely. That's fantastic now Paul Mm -hmm. no interview between us is complete unless I ask you about what you're driving these days. Oh well I had to sell one of my cars unfortunately. You're killing me which one? Yeah what with lockdown I wasn't really using it so well wasn't really using them as much so um so my um dear german bmw is gone i'm afraid well paul i do have an answer for you you could always get an electric car well actually i'm thinking about electrifying one of the ones i've got already because there's a flourishing little business going on in doing that and why would you do that well if we do run out of petrol i'm gonna have a job driving any of them aren't i all right paul it's always a delight it's a pleasure ken Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And finally, the Kenneth Neal Kukier talking to you right now over the airwaves or through your fancy wireless earbuds was once nothing more than a fertilized egg. So how did I grow into the 40 trillion cells that make up the extremely witty, intelligent, charismatic, handsome, dynamic, and complex human being that I am today? We know that our life starts with the moment of fertilization. So that's the time when sperm enters the egg. At that time, we don't grow at all. Just the big egg divides into smaller and smaller cells. And those cells have to become different from each other to make the different tissues that will make different parts of our body. Magdalena Zernichka Getz is a professor at Cambridge and Caltech studying the earliest stages of human development. She is the co-author of a book on the subject called The Dance of Life. So in a sense, you can say that the first few days of our life is really about setting aside a group of cells We can call them stem cells for the future body and group of cells that will make the placenta, that will connect the baby with the mother and a group of cells that will make a sac within which embryo will grow. So this is the very first critical decision to make these three groups of cells. And if we don't make one of them, the embryo will never be able to develop. So the question then becomes, what do we know about how the cells coordinate their actions to create life? We know a little bit about their conversation that happen through the chemical signals 
that they send to each other, some of those signals are already identified, but many are not. They also talk to each other through mechanical signals. So if one cell changes shape, for example, if it wants to divide, the neighboring cell is informed about it through the fact that the surface of the neighbor will change. And how exactly those mechanical signals are sensed throughout a group of cells, it's still unknown. So what are the consequences if this replication process goes wrong? Well, profound, because initially we don't have so many cells. So if one cell stops to divide or divide too slowly or divide too quickly, the consequences are unforgiving. If it is too slowly, you might end up at the time when embryo have to connect to the body of the mother, the process called implantation. If there is not enough stem cells to make the future body, the embryo will be aborted. So this is what we see. We know that in the mouse embryo model that we use as a primary model to understand human development, as surprisingly, mouse embryos and human embryos at these stages of our life are extremely similar to each other. By the time when embryo implants, which in the mouse is day four, in our life is day six slash seven of life, mouse embryo has to have minimum four of the cells that will build the whole organism. Normally it has around 10. So if some of those cells become destroyed or some of those cells divide slower, the embryo still can recover. It has amazing ability, we call it plasticity, that allows many embryos to recover from those perturbations. Now, you've had some personal experience with, shall we say, perturbation. Tell me about the birth of your son, Simon. I first have to say, yes, that Simon is a healthy boy right now, and I am absolutely delighted to have him. But indeed, the beginning of his life was uh, quite dramatic. I discovered I was actually pregnant quite late. I wouldn't like to say I was older mother, but you know what I mean? I was not in my 30s at the time, but I was at my 40s. I decided to have a genetic testing to check whether those cells that are building Simon's body are genetically normal. So this test is testing cells taken from placenta. And you can ask the question why they are taken from placenta if these cells are supposed to indicate whether your baby is normal. Placenta and the baby tissues, so all cells, are coming from the same egg. It turned out that an enormous amount of cells, 25% of all of the cells tested, had chromosomal abnormality. So what was your decision? I came to the realization that it could be that this abnormality, even if it happened within the embryo, the embryo might have been plastic enough to get rid of those abnormal cells in some kind of way. I knew that embryos have this plasticity, meaning that uh, not all of the cells have to be normal. But the question was whether those abnormal cells can be eliminated or they would continue to proliferate and contribute to the body. That was unknown. Now, this seems fairly essential as a finding because first it poses the question, how? Do the bad cells commit suicide or do the good ones kill them? And the second question it poses is, can we not learn from this to find treatments in embryo for disorders? So first we know that those cells that are abnormal are indeed eliminated in the part of the embryo that will make the future body, that will make the future organism. 
but not in that part of the embryo that will make placenta. Which I think it's incredible that the part of the embryo develop a mechanism to get rid of abnormal cells. But it does it in some instances and not in others, because there are genetic birth defects. Yes, I wish to stress that in that model that I had was inspired by in my pregnancy, of course, the cells were tested for placenta, so we don't know whether there were any abnormal cells in the embryo itself. But if we think about more general picture, how it can happen when many, many millions of pregnancies that we have in the world, in some cases, all of the cells within the embryo will be abnormal. Very often those pregnancies are very early aborted. But there are some other abnormalities that might relate to only fragment of the embryo. And in this case, when they happen very early stages, at very early stages of our pregnancies, they would affect enormous amount of cells in the future body. That's why it is so reassuring to know that there is this mechanism of pruning wrong cells. There are abnormalities that will arise at different stages of pregnancy, and not all of them will be eliminated during the pregnancy. So this is still uh, many years, I think, ahead of us to understand that mechanisms and when those abnormalities become eliminated versus when they wouldn't. And so what does the future of the field look like? It's a very bright future with all of different tools that many scientists developed that would allow us to understand these early stages of our life and to be able to uncover how the different abnormalities might arise and how hopefully with time we can correct many of them. And of course, the stages of development that we follow in laboratory don't relate only to the early stages of mouse or human embryo development, but also relates to stem cells. Now we can use stem cells to build embryo models and use those embryo models that are sort of, let's say, artificial type of embryo-like structures to address the influence of the environment, of different dietary, on embryo development, of drugs. So that's really something that have enormous potential for the future. We call it synthetic embryology. It's very similar to organoid type of work, but doesn't relate to specific organ like pancreas or brain, when people can also build those organs now from stem cells. They're not perfect organs, but they're good enough to have a predictive value. And we can now build synthetic embryos that will generate those different organs. And I think that's where the future is. And that's where I would like to use, for example, my Pioneer Award that I just received to open further these investigations. That's fantastic. Magda Zernika Getz, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ken. And thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Coutier, and in London, where I'm benevolent, generous, creative, and I try my producer's patience, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. 
Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.